Welcome to Reading Between the Reels. I'm Matt Leader. And I'm Craig Dickinson. And today on the show, we're going to be breaking down David Lynch's Dune from 1984. And Matt, I'm really excited to talk to you about this because I tried to get a little bit of a hint about what you thought about the film, and you told me you were waiting until we recorded. That is correct. So tell me, Matt, how much did you enjoy David Lynch's Dune? Um... I enjoyed it about as much as I enjoyed my root canal. So as we close, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to connect with us. Oh, my Lord. This was awful. Um, I have to say that you I've heard you mention multiple times about how much you love the book Dune. Uh, And so it's always been on my reading list. And um, I think you are you have a better reading habit than I do, personal reading habit than I do. And I, at the moment, have like reading ADHD. Like I cannot settle and finish a book. But I got into Dune and it sucked mm. me in and it was fantastic. And I still haven't quite finished it. Uh, but it's been a while since I really got so sucked into a book like that. And so I was really looking forward to it. I wanted to read at least part of the book because the 2021 Dune film isn't the whole book. I think it's roughly half. Yep. And so I was like, okay, I have to read at least half of it. So I've read that portion uh, going into it. Love the book, you know, got past that halfway point. And so I was like, okay, this is great. I don't really want to watch the David Lynch one. I haven't heard good things about it, but you uh, suggested it. And so we, we did this episode you know we we watched the film and kind of broke broke it down as much as we could and i gotta say it was not fun uh this was rough i i liked batman versus superman more i think and well because that's a great film this was not (laughs) so it yeah it was it was not not good not fun uh and i'll you know, for my opening thoughts, I'll leave it at that. So what what did you think overall for the film? So, and I was going to say, it, it actually works out well that you haven't finished the book because this movie is really not a very good adaptation mm-hmm. of, of the book. So you're not really missing anything. There's not really any spoilers too much. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's really, it's interesting because the movie is notoriously bad. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it came out, I was, I was pretty young. I think I was about eight when it, or maybe nine, I think, because it came out in December. And I remember hearing how bad it was just from the press. It got horrible press. Uh, and I do, I know I saw it fairly young and had no idea what was happening. But it always kind of just stuck in my brain as this is something I want to revisit. And what's funny is as bad as it was, it is the reason I read the book. So it did kind of serve a purpose in that regard that it, it pointed me toward the book, which I do love. I, it's, it's amazing. It it's, it's Lord of the Rings in space. It's that dense. So if you're into those kind of in immersive world building novels, that's that's what you're going to get. With this film, you know it's it's an attempt to try and take this massive, dense novel and squeeze it into a two hour film, yeah. and that's just not a good idea. No, you know, like we we mentioned, you know, the new one that's coming out a couple of days after this this episode will release. It's only half the film mm-hmm. or half the book, rather. And it's going to be, you know, longer than this film. Sci-Fi Channel did a miniseries, which isn't bad. I don't know if you've seen that one. Probably not if you haven't read no, the book yet. No. haven't finished that. That's not a bad adaptation as far as hitting the story beats, but it's on a lower budget. And so it's not, it's not feature film quality. Yeah. But when I watched that, I was like, oh, I get the story. It makes sense now. Whereas this one doesn't. Most of my original, th- my, my opening thoughts are, here are the many, many changes from the book. Mm-hmm. And not in a good way. Yeah. And, you know, it starts with that just bizarre intro. <laughs> where you have the princess's face just kind of zooms in. Or actually, it starts big, right? Yeah. Uh, it's it's just bizarre. And, you know, it, the book is set up where, you know, she's essentially narrating. That, that's what she ends up doing. She ends up being like this historian. Right. And so she's telling us the story. But what a bizarre choice to have this giant floating head. Uh, to tell you the story, and then it starts fading in and out, and like, what? Yeah, and that's also what struck me very quickly was that I I recognized from having read the book, it, it 
in on some level, it kind of makes sense. Like, okay, you've got this kind of narrator, and you know that's a tough thing to pull off in film. And so, you know, I recognize that's what they were trying to do, but it just, yeah, the the floating head, it didn't quite work. It it does remind me a little bit of Lord of the Rings, where you do have a epic tale that you're trying to tell, epic on this grand scope. And I, I also believe that Lord of the Rings would be, you know, before the Peter Jackson films, would be an incredibly tough uh, series of books to to properly give a proper film adaptation for. And so in some ways, I think that is a pretty good analog for a very successful film adaptation of a book series that is epic in scope. I do think that Dune as a novel is more challenging because there's so much character thought in the book. And you have to show that in some fashion, some of the emotions, some of the intention that the characters have, and you have to translate that to film. They did translate it, but it was a horrible translation. And, and the, you know, this is one thing that, you know, we're jumping right into the, the, the sound and the cinematography, but it's like the characters thinking in the film, like I understood it but it just was not engaging. It, it wasn't, it didn't feel authentic. Um, it, it just did not work for me. It wasn't, it, I didn't buy it. It wasn't believable. Um, it felt out of place to have these characters thinking, quote unquote, out loud as narration uh, during the film. You know, and I think if you have some narration especially bizarre narration at the beginning, you can kind of forgive it and move on from it. But it kind of continues throughout the whole rest of the film. And the same thing with the, the floating heads popping up and in and out. And I do get a little bit because there's a sense of, of kind of trippiness in Dune from the spice, right? And you have that sense of fore, forethought, of, of shooting your mind across the galaxy, and uh, that's that's difficult to show uh, in in film. One film that immediately jumps to my head that did it a million times better is the Doctor Strange film, which also had a very trippy out of body experience when Doctor Strange is, is kind of floating through the galaxy. And granted, they didn't have those kinds of special effects back then, but I feel like what they did, it just didn't work. <laughs> Yeah, it kind of serves like a cautionary tale. Yeah. You know, for some of those later adaptations. And I think, you know, I, I going back to the Lord of the Rings adaptation, you know, when it starts with Galadriel doing the narration at the beginning of Fellowship, like that to me was the and I'd only read the book once at that point, um, the Lord of the Rings. And that kind of crystallized for me a lot of the things that I had just kind of glossed over just because I wanted to get to the meat mm-hmm. of the book. And you know, it's a very similar type of setup where they, you know, have just a a voiceover. There's you don't see Galadriel's floating head. You know, you have an action sequence and all of these things that you're setting up that there's this dense and and very important history, which you have in Dune as well. And so it looks like, you know, that would be a way you could have done it had you not opted for floating head. So maybe, you know, I I don't know, but maybe Peter Jackson and his people looked at that and was like, let's not do that. Let's try this. Because that worked so much better to, to bring you in. This is just, you know, it's, she's giving you a lot of information. I mean, it's, and it's awkward too. You know, she has that part where she says, oh yes, I forgot to tell you. What do you it mean is. you forgot to tell us? It and is. it's about the spice. Yeah. And it's about yeah. the planet that book is named after, uh, you what? know, followed by this extended credit sequence, just showing the Sandu with every single person who worked on the film's name popping up. So. Along those lines, I feel like that's an attempt to have this kind of conversational tone. And again, that's kind of what I mean by like, it I, it just doesn't work. Like, that's such an awkward way to do it. <laughs> right. And, and Spice, especially if this is your first introduction to the story, you have to know about Spice. Like, really, more than anything else. If you understand that Spice is important and how important it is in this story, the rest of the story can kind of be filtered uh, through the world building of the film, if you understand that key concept. And so it, it it's just, 
it's just baffling the way they decided to do that at the beginning. Yeah. I'm looking through some of the other things I had for for changes from the book and I'm looking through most of them and they're they're later in the book and so I mm-hmm. think I'm going to hold on to those because I want they're not in the movie. Mm-hmm. But they're important for the book. Yeah. Since you haven't gotten there, I'm going to not talk <laughs> about that. I'm going to save you that because I made you watch this film. I'll at least let you have that and then we'll talk about it after you finish the book. Okay. So, we talked a little bit about um cinematography and you know, starting with the giant head of Irulan over the Starfield. Uh, I do want to compliment the, this movie. This movie did do some interesting things, some some things very well, I thought, that, you know, we talk about sense of scale a lot in, in some of these films. And knowing that this film was with models, it was using models, that I think they did an excellent job with some of these things like the, like the spice harvester, for instance, uh, and also even, even the sandworms, mm-hmm. to, you know, filling the screen where it... Once they're up on top of it, I mean, clearly it looks, you know, they're on a, probably a blue screen back then, not before they did green screen. But when you see them climbing up the side, like that feels immersive. I, I, I buy that to an extent. Yeah. And I, I think that the, um, the sandworms, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. Yeah. They, I, I felt like they, they felt uh, fairly, real i mean I, I i think they felt organic um the sense of scale definitely did work um i will say that the um um the design of the ships i didn't find particularly inspiring um <laughs> but but as far as sense of scale and the way it was shot i think it was it was fine i really did not uh, find the cinematography uh, too special, but it, I don't think it was horrible either. Uh, yeah. When I say it was a horrible movie, it wasn't for you know just lack of construction. Like the basic building blocks uh, were fine for me. The big problems were uh, with story, with character, with acting. Uh, yeah. So cinematography, I think, was for the most part uh, definitely good. Right. Uh, it didn't detract from the film in any way for me. Yeah, there was a couple things that that detracted for me, and I noticed on this time through that they reused some of the establishing shots, which I thought mm-hmm. found distracting. I'm like, oh, there's that shot of Getty Prime again with like that giant face spewing smoke. That's that same <laughs> shot. You know, uh, there's the same uh, exterior shot of like the Emperor's Palace. It's like it's over in the right hand corner, just like it was when the you know. Uh, the navigator from the from the uh, spacing guild comes in at the beginning. So same shots there. I'm like, okay, that that's not cool. Like you're you know as much money as you spend on this movie, um, you probably could have come up with a couple of different looking shots for that. Uh, color in this film, a lot of green for the bad guys, which I, I always like that. Kind of going with red hair too. Yeah, the, so you definitely have the red hair for all the, the Harkonnens or Harkonnens, depending on how you want to pronounce that. That changes depending on which version you're watching, <laughs> uh, which is fine. Uh, you know, the box with the Gamja bar is green as well. And so, you know, and we know later on we find that, you know, the Reverend Mother, she's not, she's not a good person. She's not on the side of good. So that makes sense that she'd have, you know, the green that kind of aligns with the, uh, the Harkonnens as well. And of course, you have the gold. We talked about this with Casino Royale, kind of like gold being opulence. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know, the Emperor's Palace is just gilded mm-hmm. everywhere. Yeah, and I guess I should clarify a little bit that there were definitely, you know, like the floating head and all that kind of stuff. Um, I didn't catch the reused shots when I watched it, so I, that 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 didn't bother me. But I mean, this is not a good movie. <laughs> But what did you think about the eyes? The way they had the <laughs> eyes being blue. And, and and this actually that's actually a really good point. It looked bad, but it's something that I could have easily forgiven and overlooked had I liked the characters and the story yeah. had been right. So that's that's I guess that's more of what I'm thinking is the cinematography was not the cardinal sin, right? It was a, a tiny sin here and there <laughs> sprinkled around like right. sprinkles. Uh and so, you know, like the eyes, <laughs> I can kind of take it or leave it. It didn't look good, 
but I understand some of the limitations of technology. It sure. is what it is. I think the shields that they use look yeah. horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Those were so cool in 84. They were awesome. They and were never it's cool. Just, it's you trash. just didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We were ignorant. Yes. We're like, this is awesome. It kind of looks like Tron. I'm so into this. And all, you know, neither one of those films' special effects have held up. But. Yeah, so that was bad. Yeah, it uh, is bad. Th- there's some odd close-ups. Yeah, um, you know, on Yui's mouth, the tooth, the tooth. Okay, that's yes, that's creepy. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and so, but it's like again, some of those things could be forgiven had characters and story been better. Right. Right. If it was in a better movie, it was in a better movie. Be- you could kind of forgive yeah. some of the weirdness. And it's it's in a bad movie, so we can't forgive it. Yeah, it's like Death by a Thousand Cuts. Kind of, this film. yeah. Yeah. What did you think about uh, the voice? Because I thought that was one of the cooler things in, in this film, the way they do that effect. I I didn't particularly like it. Um, and, you know, thinking back, it does make sense that, that they use some kind of voice modulation to indicate that that's going on. Um, I do wonder if they couldn't have used cinematography and just like repetition, right? And like using, you know, focusing the camera up on Jessica or Paul when they're using it and indicating something's going on. And they kind of do this in Force Awakens when right. when Rey is trying to use the, the Jedi mind trick, right? Where... There's a little bit of music, a little bit of sound effects, but it's also cinematography. It's all kind of blending in there. And it helps, yes, that, you know, we know what she's kind of trying to do. But even in the original Star Wars, I mean, it wasn't voice modulation. It wasn't my favorite. Um, I thought it was okay. Um, I didn't mind it. But at the beginning, it struck me as very weird. Like when I first heard it. And then as I went on the film, it kind of eased up on it. Yeah. And that's one of those many things that, you know, Lucas has, has admitted that, that Star Wars has taken some things from Dune. I mean, even just the desert planet alone, but that, you know, the, uh, the Bene Gesserit are kind of proto Jedi right. in, in a lot of ways. And so it's very much like a Jedi mind trick when they're using the voice. So that's cool. Yeah. Uh, one thing that jumped out at me a lot this time is that the main theme for this film, which is super repetitive. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, that's just sticking in my brain. And that sounds really familiar. What, why is that so familiar? And then I realized, oh yeah, that's, that's Dies Irae, Day of Wrath over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know, it's Judgment Day is coming, which is kind of an interesting uh, a concept for, you know, with Paul's coming. I mean, it is Judgment Day for the galaxy when he shows up. And that's not something that really fits with the film itself that we get. <laughs> you know, in the book it is. Because yeah. I know you've gotten to the part already where, you know, he's talking about the jihad right. and trying to avoid that. Right. That's not a thing that comes up in this film at all. You know, it, he it, is very much very like... Very tangentially. He's the savior. Everything's going to be great. Yeah. Well, and, and that's uh, another part where it the book is rich with ideas mm-hmm. and philosophy and, and, and the movie hints that it's there. Because, you know, in the movie, you have him standing in front of his soldiers and stuff. But it's very glossed over as kind of a montage of, oh, and by the way, he's got a giant army with him. Okay, right. right? There's no indication that he may not want that. (laughs) Which I think in the book is pretty clear that he's very wary of the actual military power that he might control. And what he might do if he becomes this leader that uh, people around him hope he might be. And so I think you're absolutely right where it, it, it the Day of Wrath works much better thematically with the book than it does with the movie. Although on a surface level with the kind of revenge plot, it, it does kind of make sense. Right. And this is the thing that also gives me hope for the new film, because I know that, uh, and I can't say his name, Dennis, I'm going to call him Dennis, uh, the director of the new film, uh, is a big fan of the book. And David Lynch had not read Dune before he wrote the script for this. I mean, this is David Lynch's baby, for the most part. I mean, he had, didn't have Final Cut 
which kind of takes it away from being his his baby. But the, the ideas behind it, the core ideas come from someone who's a, a Dune newbie who doesn't necessarily understand the story. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's a frustrating thing. Very. This. <laughs> you know, um, it's odd to me that Toto is the, the group that does the music. I don't know if they've done any other soundtracks. I don't think they have. I mean, they're basically just a pop group. Yeah. Right? Uh, you also have the the prophecy theme, which is really just a very ethereal, uh, just a couple of mo- just a couple of note motif mm-hmm. um, by um, who's, who did it again? Uh, Brian Eno, uh, who's of course worked with U two and worked a lot with David Bowie, and it shows up only a couple of times to my uh, to my notice. I know it shows up when uh, Paul first hears about the worms. Uh, and the spice when they're flying over the the spice harvester, harvester, and then right before he drinks the water of life, and so you kind of have this mm-hmm. through line of you know he's going to make the connection between the the worms and the spice, and ultimately kind of you know that's he's receiving his call to adventure, and he has that metamorphosis where we have you know a lot of the hero's journey beats happen at least in the book they do right with the death and rebirth and all of those things, but it is very much a dark version of that. You yes. know, it's not. He doesn't, you know, have the ultimate boon and then return and have wisdom for everybody. They think he does, mm-hmm. you know, initially, but there's there's definitely a dark side. So, um, and you get to that, especially when you get to to Dune Messiah. Uh, there's a lot of that in the next book. So, hopefully, we'll get to see an adaptation of that at some point. Well, I'm also uh, kind of hoping, and there have been you know, rumblings on the internet that uh, the 2021 film uh, that there'll be, uh, you know, a green light for the sequel. And that they might make it into a trilogy with Dune Messiah being that third, uh, third movie. Who knows if that'll happen? Um, I think that it would be fantastic if that's the case, because just from the trailers alone, I can tell you it's a hundred million times more beautifully shot than the David Lynch film. And so, if if for that reason alone, plus all the actors, uh, it's just insane. Jason Momoa looks amazing. Uh, yeah, we shouldn't talk about the 2021 film too much, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, I will say this is a good transition. Though you mentioned how beautifully shot the the new film is, and you know, this one's shot by by Freddie Francis, who is a two time Academy Award winner. You know, he did uh, what did he do? He did Sons and Lovers, and he also did Glory, uh, which is that's a great film. I haven't seen the previous the first film, and he did also did the Elephant Man for Lynch, which is a, a very interesting film and and very dramatically shot and beautiful in a certain way uh, type of film. And uh, it's just, you know, there's actually a lot of people, there's Academy Award winning editing um, as well. And and it's just, you have, it's less than the sum of its parts, I think. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. Yeah, Uh, make some weird choices. But you mentioned the actors too. And, you know, Kyle McLaughlin and he's, he just does not. I may use the word gravitas. It's got a hashtag gravitas. He just just doesn't have that yeah. in this film for me. He does not feel like the type of person that would, you know, inspire a group of desert fremen to. He's not charismatic. No, he's not. And in you know, this movie does a. This movie tells you yeah. that he's charismatic, and it definitely doesn't show you. It's just all of it. They're like, "Yep, we'll follow you." And like, it's just in the book, it's earned, but here, it's just not. Well, in the perfect, there's two examples that jump into my mind. The first is when they first, uh, uh, Jessica and Paul, when they first meet the Fremen, and uh, there's this little scuffle, and the Fremen are like, "Oh well, you bested us, so now I pledge my life to you." And like, your water is my water, and our water is your way, all that kind of stuff. And it's yeah. just like, that's it. <laughs> Okay, and then later on, when um, Paul and Chani fall in love, it literally just tells us they fell in love with yep. like them kissing on screen, and that's it. And it it just is it it's mind boggling that people thought that was good storytelling. It it it's not earned, and those should be important, you know, character beats in in the film in the story and it's like right. they're not <laughs> and i think part of it is the lack of of gravitas um but in general the script doesn't do him any favors either 
I mean, no. it's not really well written. Yeah. And you know what's interesting is they aged up the character of Paul Atreides. Mm-hmm. And they aged up Fade Rutha as well. Uh, the character played by by Sting, who's fantastic in this. He's super, super cheesy. You know, he's mm-hmm. fantastic to watch because he's so over the top. I think everyone's melodramatic in this, except for maybe McLaughlin. He might be kind of static. Um, but even so, you have, I mean, because the character, Paul Atreides, has, has, goes over through this transformation and has to be this inspiring messianic figure. And so it makes sense on paper to say, we're just going to age him up a little bit. And yet, I mean, it didn't work. You swung and missed. Mm-hmm. Like, you tried to do that and, you know, He's supposed to be 15. He's clearly not 15. Uh, and yet that still didn't work. So just aging him up did not fix the um, dramatic acting chops. Not at all. Question. I, I love the pug. Uh, uh, that was my favorite <laughs> part. I had a question for you about that. Why do you think there's a pug? Because I have a theory. Um, so pugs, historically speaking, uh, were uh, dogs of royalty. And so, to me, it's it's a sign of like same same thing for House Atreides. Okay, what's your so theory? So kind of, it's kind of similar to that. It's just that this whole movie is so bizarre <laughs> that here is something familiar to kind of ground you in kind of the same way that you know, James Gunn chooses to use pop music from the seventies mm-hmm. to kind of ground you in the bizarre part of the galaxy that the Guardians are in. Yeah. It's like, hey, there's here's some touchstones. Yeah. It's like, hey, you know what? There's this weird, like, fish-looking dude, and people are reading each other's minds and these bald witches and all this stuff, and it's <laughs> 10,000 years in the future, but we still have pugs. We still have oh, Okay, pugs. I'm good. I'm I'm okay. I can go with that, you know, just the rest of it will kind of come. I mean, your theory might hold water because that's kind of what my thinking was. It's like, okay, well, there's a pug, so I'll keep watching. But then, but then Patrick Stewart brought the pug into battle. And that's not really their forte. They're more no. of like sit on the couch and eat, which yeah. is why I love them. Yeah. But um, yeah, you, you talked about how most of the acting is melodramatic. I think it was just all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> because there were, it's really bad. There are moments when it's like, I feel like there's, they should be more emotive right, in their feelings and they're not. And then they say or do something, and I'm, it's just eye-rolling bad. Like, oh, come on. I, yeah. I don't buy that. So it, I, I honestly don't. You said um, Sting, you know, as, as Fade Rutha. I didn't think it was good. <laughs> no, he's not good. I'm not saying he's good. Okay. He's just, he's just committed. He's, he just, you know, he doesn't hold back. Sure. I, I, can, having, I, he, I can see that. Yeah, he's having fun. Yeah. And there's some good actors in this film. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Patrick Stewart. Dean Stockwell's great, too. And he's actually not bad in this film. And neither Patrick Stewart. They're, they're both good. But, but, like, with Patrick Stewart, he really doesn't have that much. No. So, <laughs> it's like, he. I think it's less bad because he's not in the film as much. Yeah. And it's amazing that, you know, both of those guys, he and Dean Stockwell, kind of escape the stain of this movie, right? Mm-hmm. It's like when, you know, when both of those get in and when... Uh, Patrick Stewart gets Star Trek and Dean Stockwell's in Quantum Leap. They're not, hey, and he, Dean Stockwell's been in tons of stuff, Married to the Mob and some other things. He doesn't have, hey, that's the guy from Dune. Mm-hmm. Like that didn't follow them, yeah. which is pretty great. I guess everyone was like, well, you know what? It wasn't your fault that you were in this <laughs> heap of trash. So um, that's that seems mean, but David Lynch has essentially just disowned this film too. So yeah, that's, that's not a good sign. No. Um, they do preserve some of the best lines from the book in this film. Yeah, they and do. And I do like the fact that this film, in some ways, kind of serves as like a Cliff Notes version of the book. <laughs> so if you've read the book, but only if you've read the book, right? If you haven't read the book, then you're lost, probably, or confused, or just frustrated. But if you have read the book, yeah, I enjoyed it way more now that I've seen it. I'm like, okay, well, that's the part. I can tune out when I don't like that part. But, oh, this is the part I really liked here. I really like the Gam Jabbar. I, I think that's a great... That's a, that's one of my favorite scenes in this film. It's one of my favorite scenes in the book, and I think I said it kind of carries over there. So you have the speech about fear is the mind killer. It's a great little mantra uh, that I think he pulls up that part off okay. Hmm. Um, 
I, I do have to say that um, the feeling that I got, I think your description of it with like the cliff notes is a really good way to describe it because it felt like they took individual, almost like little vignettes from the book. And there was very little connective tissue. So even though there were lines from the book, um, uh, I must not fear fears the mind killer being the best one of them. Um, it just felt so smashed together yeah. in the editing room where it feels like, okay, we filmed this scene and this scene and that's the order the book had them in. So we're just, we'll stitch them together like that. And um, one that struck me was, was when um, uh, Duke Leto they, and, uh, and Paul, and I'm forgetting the other character's name, but they were on like the flying vessel and they go rescue the workers. Mm -hmm. uh, Lee Kynes is on there too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and in, in the book, and to an extent in the film, you know, it's a good character uh, defining moment for Duke Leto. And uh, if it is Keynes, he goes like this man, he, he thinks only of, of the, of the workers. Um, right. And it, and it's just, even the lines, and I believe that was a line from the book too, but yeah. it's the way it's presented is just so bad that even the lines I loved from the film or, you know, in the film from the book, I, I I just it was more cringy than anything for me. I was just like I can't I can't enjoy it. Yeah, it's almost like they were just told just stand there and just have a blank face because yeah. you're going to do ADR later for your thoughts. Right. So we'll just tell the audience what you're doing. Right. So it's like do not emote. Don't don't act with your face because we're going to tell people what you're thinking, like a like in a play, but really really badly. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if that's what they did. Because it looks that way. Because you have what it looks at like. Max Falcido. I mean, you have these great actors. Yeah. And he's funny. He's barely in the film. He's not served very well at all. He's much, much more important in the book. But he, you know, he just comes. Why, why is he even in the film if yeah. you're not even going to use him? Right. Well, and that's where I, I feel like they needed to take out the the thoughts, right? And yeah. they needed to add dialogue and action to show that characterization but in some other way. Yeah. And it wouldn't be, you know, that would be more of a spiritual adaptation of the book. And I feel like that would have been better served. <laughs> the story would have been better served that way. Yeah. So I do want to talk about one of the, of the changes from, from the book because it comes in, in body language as well. And that you see the emperor visibly nervous in front of the navigator. Yeah. Which doesn't make sense yeah. because he's the emperor of the known universe. <laughs> and as much as, you know, the the spacing guild is, they're kind of like this triumvirate, right? You have the, the emperor and the imperium and you have the spacing guild and you have the Bene Gesserit essentially as like these three big powers of the galaxy. But they don't have, they threaten him on multiple occasions. And like, did you read the book? Yeah. Well, and, I mean, I think at least twice the the very very strange navigator um tells the emperor to stop talking like right. be quiet i'm i'm being i'm talk i'm talking you're the one who's listening yeah and it's like that doesn't sound right it doesn't <laughs> yeah, look even right even if you yeah that's i don't know why you'd get that interpretation uh from there what do you think about the costumes in this in in this film i'm glad you brought them up because um I thought overall, I actually quite liked the Atreides uh, costumes. Um, I I felt like the kind of very smart military uniforms that they wore at the beginning uh, made a lot of sense. I think they looked really good. Um, some of the emperor's retinue, if you will, I think looked mm -hmm. the part. I thought you mentioned already kind of the gold color for the opulence. I thought they looked fine. Uh, the Bene Gesserit looked strange which yeah. i'm fine with like i can roll with it um, yeah i'm even good with the baldness on there. i mean it's it's a weird choice <laughs> it's a weird choice a weird but it's a choice of people so um i hated the harkonnen stuff <laughs> it's bad well and it's just it's just over the top right because in the book it's very very obvious that the harkonnens are supposed to be the bad guys right 
And I think the film takes that very obvious thing and then they push it to an 11 where it's like the servant's ears are sewn together and they have the weird like blood ritual thing going on and very obvious like disgusting boils over everyone's faces and it's just like okay okay but there's no subtlety in that at all no (laughs) it's like you're not trusting the viewer at all to and there's no subtlety in this film and and the harkonnens are the worst of it yeah in i was gonna you know just to add on to that where you have you know the mentats which in Mm -hmm. the book they have a physical distinguishing figure you know a distinguishing feature where they have the stained lips mm-hmm. and they both have the stained lips in this too. But Lynch was like, let's also add crazy hair and eyebrows. Yeah, that too. But you don't need that mm-hmm. because it's apparently according to the book, like it's fairly obvious. Oh, got, that dude's a mentat. Look at his lips. Like mm-hmm. it's not, it's something that's going to jump out. It's red stain, you know, the Sappho, the internalizing the, the spice lips. But again, throw subtly right out the window. Uh, you know, Bob Ringwood, who did the the costumes for three Batman movies, did Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, did Alien 3 and and 4 and a bunch of other stuff, did the, the costumes for this one too. And so that kind of makes sense with all the leather, <laughs> you know, when you're looking at like the Space and Guild guys and even the still suits yeah. kind of have, if you look carefully, that looks, that could be like a bat suit a little bit. I can, I kind of like buy that. that. Yeah. I kind of like that look. And in looks, it's very stylized, and it looks like they spent some time on that. Even the Harkonnens, which is ugly, mm-hmm. it looks like they actually put some thought into it. But the Sardaukar, they look like they're just wearing radiation suits. Yeah. Which is bizarre. And that's another thing in this film where when they show up the first time on, uh, on Arrakis, and they're you know, leading the purge, essentially, uh, of the Atreides, they're not really, it's not really clear that they're the Sardaukar. <laughs> but later on in the film... They suit up again and like, oh, that's right. In the book, I remember that, you know, the emperor was in on it and all that stuff. And maybe, maybe, well, and they mentioned that too, because like at the very beginning. So, you know, Dune has this very strong uh, vein of of political intrigue, right? Mm. Where it's these, you know, quote unquote, noble houses who are warring against each other. And... There's none of that intrigue. There's none of that, as we mentioned, subtlety. The emperor just literally says to his whole court, everyone who's there, yeah, we're going to pretend that he basically monologues his plan to kill and, and backstab the Atreides clan. Yep. And it's just like, okay, why? Why <laughs> Why are you saying that? Why are we doing this? This makes no sense. And so um, I will say that when the navigator from uh, the Space Guild shows up, I had no idea who or what he was. <laughs> no. And I had just read, you know, most of the book. I had to go look it up. Like, who, what is that thing? Yeah. And, and the weird kind of space travel makes no sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's that, like, fish dude. <laughs> like, he's supposed to be a mutated human. Right. But... Yeah, no, no it's not remotely, and it's described in pretty good detail in the book. But they are well, just I, like, I you know what? Let's make him look like a fish. I looked it up on it. on the wiki, and based on the description in the book, it is supposed to be like this mutated human, which mm-hmm. looks nothing like what you see in the film. Yeah, and again, that's where it's just a strange choice. And, and there's no explanation for what he is, as far as I remember in the film. Like I had again, I had to look up like, okay, what is this thing? Why? Yeah, why might... is he like threatening the emperor? Right. I think there might be a little bit in dialogue that that says that they have that weird opening thing where they set up, you know, the special secret message from the guild. Yeah, uh, that might be in there, and that might be spoken in in conversation as well. I had subtitles on, and I think I might have seen it at some point, but I also knew, so I, I might have just glossed over that. Yeah, uh, to know. But speaking of design, uh, some weird design. Off, oh, clearly that's weird. The Orenthopter is all wrong as well. There's no <laughs> flapping wings. It's just a box. It looks like a giant cardboard box. Yeah, and I get that pulling that off would be difficult, but 
it's so boxy. Yeah. It doesn't even work. Whereas like the spice harvester works really, really well. Mm. And even, you know, the Atreides ships, I thought was kind of an interesting, you know, an interesting concept where you had this ornate door, like in this, I don't know, cigar, I guess is what <laughs> the way yeah. it's, that massive, you know, freighter is set up. And I kind of like the way they're kind of just racked in there. I thought that was kind of an interesting way because, you know, they don't have the ability to, to travel, you know, between planets mm-hmm. without, you know, without the spacing guild. And so it would make sense that they'd have to kind of load them up like it's a ferry, essentially. I, I thought, I mean, there were some interesting things, but it just, you know, there's so many things that didn't work. Yeah. And speaking of things that don't work, the weirding modules to <laughs> me is the most egregious. Well, there's two right here. One, I'll go back to the weirding modules. The first is Paul is using a computer mm-hmm. to look up stuff on Arrakis. Yeah. And if you're just watching the film, not a big deal. But if you've read the book and you know about the um, Butlerian Jihad, where they outlaw the thinking computers mm-hmm. because they had a whole war with them. Yeah. He would not be using a computer. Doesn't make That's any like, sense. It's sacri- It's literally in the book. It would be literally sacrilege yeah. because they've got all of the things about um, religion and all. And it's very. It's a very religious society. It is. So like, did you not read the book? There is no computers. That's why there's mentats. It's all connected. Uh, but then the weirdy modules is the other thing too. And I know this is very much a Lynch thing where he he's you know he didn't want to have martial arts out in the desert. <laughs> but that's what it is. Yeah. You know, it's, and you get a tiny little, it's like, he doesn't go whole hog on that because there is one instance of it. Like you mentioned the scene where they meet the Fremen for the first time and mm-hmm. uh, Jessica overpowers Stilgar really fast. Mm-hmm. And they mentioned the weirding way briefly, mm-hmm. but then they're like, yeah, the weirding module is part of the weirding way. We're just going to have these sonic weapons where you just <laughs> say something loud and it blows stuff up. All right. <laughs> oh, it just makes me mad. It's just dumb. And it's, that's all it is. It's just, it doesn't yeah. make any sense. And how did the Fremen make those in the desert? Like they had the plans because Yui stuck them in the thing, in the <laughs> orthopter. But no, because again, one of the themes, I'm, I'm getting some serious like Rise of Skywalker vibes where what's mm-hmm. the lesson of the, it's, you know, redemptive violence mm-hmm. uh, is that, you know, it's, there's very much a nature versus technology vibe in the book. Yeah. You know, they're riding the sandworms. They're in touch with the planet and all that. And it's like, nope, they just have some sonic weapons and they're going to blow crap up. Well, and it, you know, and like I said, I haven't quite finished the book, but there, I, I feel like there are some very strong colonial, colonialism yeah. versus the, the native inhabitants going on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is also very quickly discarded. Um, Cause I think there's some lip service paid to the Fremen at the beginning of the film. But then they're basically just treated at, at the end, they're just Paul's personal army. Period. Right. Like, there's nothing really, you know, there's no thought about them and 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 how they have this dream of creating Arrakis as an inhabitable planet, right? And and bringing water to Arrakis and essentially allowing people to live freely on Arrakis because of available water. I mean, ultimately, that's that's one of their dreams uh, for the Fremen. And um, right at the end, you have the rain come down. <laughs> Atrocious. So I'm assuming I'm, that's okay. not part of the book. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go back just two seconds to uh, to the line, the last line of the book of the movie, which is not in the book, and it gets it completely wrong. So. She says, uh, Princess uh, Irulan says, Muad'Dib had become the hand of God fulfilling the Fremen prophecy. Okay, I'm good with that so far. Mm-hmm. Where there was war, Muad'Dib, Muad'Dib would now bring peace. That's wrong. Where there was hatred, Muad'Dib would bring love. That's also wrong. To lead the people to true freedom that changed the face of Arrakis and as it's coming down. And then you have, you know, his sister, uh, Alia, who's, I think she's pretty good in this. She's I actually fine. liked her. Yeah. I liked her just fine. How and how is this possible? Because he is the Kwisatz Haderach, mm-hmm. heavily implying that he caused it to rain. Right. I mean, I think that's the only way to read. Oh, it. that's definitely the implication. Yeah, Frank Herbert, the author of the book, <laughs> like called that out, and for the most part, he actually liked the the movie. He liked what they had tried to do, but he's like, he's a guy playing at God. Yeah. He's not literally God. Right. He can't do that. And even if he could, you just completely ruined the entire ecology of 
Arrakis. Yeah. All those sandworms are going to die. Yeah. You've just completely cut off the spice and all, like, you're missing the point. Yeah. <laughs> to such a degree that is so egregious. Well, and I, I mean, think kind of look, it looks cool, but yeah. <laughs> I think, I think the lines were fine because part yeah. of the story in, in the book is that Paul is kind of, like you said, playing God. Mm-hmm. So I, I was actually fine with the lines because that felt like playing God. You know, yeah. they're talking him up. I'm okay with that, right? Because that's, and, and to a large extent, that's what a lot of them believe. They believe that Paul is kind of the the chosen one, right? True. Uh, but the rain, <laughs> yeah, that, that definitely felt wrong. And that felt yeah. like, no, I, it feels like the people who are making the film bought into... Paul being the chosen one when it's like that is not the point of the book yeah and even you know in in the book Dune in the little epigraphs at the beginning of the the chapters there are some and I think even fairly early on where Princess Irulan mentions like the blood like he's gonna cause a lot of violence like that's not a surprise right when that happens and you have, we talked about this a little bit earlier, where Paul's having these prophetic dreams of the jihad and right. how do I fulfill my destiny, but also not cause the massacre of millions of innocents. Mm-hmm. And so there's this constant struggle that's completely absent uh, from this film. And it would have been interesting yeah. if they would, if this film would have made money <laughs> and they had greenlit the second one, because there was talk that they were going to do more. I mean, that's Hollywood, of course, they're going to want to do the next one. There's, it's already sitting there, right? If they would have done Dune Messiah to try and make that work with this, where you have the fallout of the jihad, spoiler alert, um, you know, that's what it's about. Yeah. I don't think so, it, I, I mean, they would have, they would have had to just maul and mangle the book. Yeah. To, to try and like make a story out of it. So, yeah. Cause it was, well, it's, it's very much the hero's journey, right? Where chosen right. one, and <laughs> Paul comes to the rescue at the end and leads the people to victory, uh, which is both the point and not the point of the book, right? Right? Where it's like, yes, you can have people who uh, are, uh, you know, have that chosen one aura gravitas to them. Maybe you shouldn't trust them, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so right. it's like. I felt like they they got there and then they went too far and kind of ruined the thematic, uh, you know, they kind of ruined the theme that that should have been there. Right. So, anything in characters we haven't covered, or should we talk about our final thoughts? Do you have anything else? I mean, there's a huge cast, so um, uh, I think I think for closing thoughts, I think closing yeah. on the characters is, is pretty good because, you know, like I said, there's certain, vi- it feels like a bunch of vignettes uh, from the book, which, yeah. okay, it's fine. But it, I, there is just, there was something lacking in the characters of the film. And, I, you know, for me, I kind of describe it as this believability. You know, we, we kind of describe acting as, you know, static, dramatic, or melodramatic, where dramatic is you're kind of hitting your beats of you're showing emotion so that people can can uh, can connect with you, and they just they just weren't doing it. And ultimately, I think that's why I feel because um, I find the book so much more engrossing. And really, there's you can really see like the parts pulled from the book. And so, for whatever reason, uh, you know the actors they they didn't pull it off i i did not feel and and here's one thing that that strikes me so i've watched all the trailers for the 2021 dune right and there's one particular line that duke leto says in the trailer uh where he and i don't quite remember but paraphrasing you know paul says something like and what if i can't succeed what if i can't hold you know the planet or whatever and duke leto says even if you fail at that, you'll still have succeeded in the only thing that matters being my son. That one line has more connection, more pathos, more empathy, right? You can connect with that because who wouldn't want a parent or a parent figure to say something like that to them? 
already I love Dugletto. <laughs> yep. And not just because yeah. it's Oscar Isaac. Right. But it's like that right there, that is that's what I'm I'm looking for. I'm looking for that connection. And I'm already more connected to Dugletto from the new movie because that one line than the Duke Leto from this film. And that's a horrible, horrible, I mean, <laughs> that's a bad sign. Yeah. And that's the best way I can describe it is I, I could not connect to the characters. And if I can't connect to the characters, there's nothing there. No, I'm with you. So is it so bad it's good or is it just so bad that it, it stays it's, bad. It stays bad. <laughs> it just stays, it bad. stays bad. And so I'm going to finish with how about the men credits, man? <laughs> with the Toto music playing. Alphabet, and alphabetical like, order. Alphabetical order. It's like yearbook photos. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, we did this movie. Yeah, we did. We own it. It's, you know, <laughs> it just doesn't work. It's so like, man, yeah, that's right. That guy was in this. And I like that. <laughs> that that's like the feeling you're supposed to have. And you're just like, yeah, mm. there's just a list of people responsible for the two hours you just for lost. This travesty. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, uh, you know, I'm glad that I make you watch it <laughs> and I'm looking forward to you making me watch a horrible film. Uh, but again, it's, it's kind of like you're cleansing the palate, right? You're getting ready for, I guess, for what, I mean, how much better, how much better will the 2021 film, the new film be, you know, because it has, this is the bar. But but you're forgetting the fact that I could have just not watched this film <laughs> and still watched the 2021 Dune. That's true. So yeah, I do need to think of a, a horrible movie for you to watch. That um, sounds awesome. We'll do that in, in the new year. <laughs> so with that, uh, this is a very special episode for us. This is actually our potiversary. Yeah. One year ago, uh, we started with... Uh, that other name, Coruscant <laughs> Community College, which I still love. I still love the name. Still I still love the logo. Name. I still like the whole the whole idea, the whole brand. But who well, as you know, we are now reading between the reels. And you know, we we're so grateful for each and every one of you that listen and download and subscribe and share and follow us and any of our numerous places. And uh well, I want to just, you know, give out some some shout outs uh to some people, we have a voicemail from Dan Zare. I think maybe playing that at the end would probably be the best uh, best fit for that. But I want to just start with, you know, thanking uh, my wife and my kids for giving me time to do this uh, and the support. And I'm sure, Matt, you, you feel the same way about your wife. And, yeah. You know, just being able to, to book some time. And, and honestly, Matt, I want to thank you just for, <laughs> you know, having a time where, you know, something to look forward to. We're just, you know, we hang out and talk about movies. It's like one of the highlights of my week for sure. Uh, I want to say thanks to, to Dan, you know, we can't really thank him enough. Dan mm -hmm. definitely came in and helped us from the beginning, honestly, even in our first incarnation. Uh, and then with the, with the rebrand, I want to thank Mike pilot. Who's always been supportive, you know, since the first time I talked to him about teaching star Wars in the classroom, Brian young, who I know is, uh, was our, was a guest on one of our early episodes and, and has said he wants to be on again. I really think we need to do Roger Rabbit when he's on. Yes. I think that would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, Ian Desher, who we've talked to multiple times, uh, author of William Shakespeare, Star Wars, is, you know, he did uh, in the classroom with my students. And I think we'll have him on to talk about Back to the Future, I think is, is uh, kind of the tentative plan. David Collins from The Soundtrack Show. Love that show. If you're not listening to The Soundtrack Show, please do. Uh, that guy knows everything about music as far as I'm concerned. I've learned so much from him uh, and he's just, you know, he's a teacher that teaches, he's a teacher, even, even if he's not by profession, but he's teaching us music in a way that makes it easy for people who don't have music degrees. Uh, Aaron Harris, I want to thank him. Jeff McGee, Corey Heidschmidt, uh, The Lethal Mullet. That's another interesting podcast, great podcast from Down Under. Uh, Adam O'Brien is The Lethal Mullet. He's very complimentary for, of us and is usually on our Facebook group a lot, jumping in. Uh, I want to thank Daniel Contreras from Star Wars. Now this is podcasting, Star Wars Podcast Day. Uh, we had a great time being involved with that last year. And uh, I'm thinking if we do that again this year, we should definitely do the holiday special, mm -hmm. which is like this movie bad, but that would be <laughs> the perfect time to do that. 
Thomas Riddle. I want to thank Thomas Riddle and Wes Dodgins from Star Wars in the Classroom. Thomas Riddle also does Imaginary Education, which is a fantastic podcast with educators. And we'll get Thomas on at some point, I think, to talk Indiana Jones. Uh, I want to thank Adam Bray, who's been very supportive of us. And we need to have him on, too, because that guy knows. He writes, you know, the Marvel guidebooks for DK. And he's a great dude. Uh, Jordan Mason, everyone who participates in RBR Movie Buffs, Jordan's in there as well. And he writes um, lots of great articles um, online for it's for Cinelinks and has been a big supporter of us. And, sub, you know, he participates in RBR Movie Buffs, our Facebook group. And just, again, want to just thank everybody who listens and subscribes. Yeah, and I uh, want to say thank you to to everyone you mentioned, um, and in particular to my wife and your wife uh, for letting us do this, <laughs> and yeah. uh, to you, because uh, really, in a lot of ways, uh, this this is all because of you. And um, <laughs> it's my fault. <laughs> it really is, um, but really, it started you know when you brought up your your idea for teaching film in the classroom. And I went, that's really cool. And I, I took it and ran with it and, um, you know, brought it back to you. And we kind of workshopped it and went back and forth and, you know, meeting of the minds. And, uh, but, you know, without you, none of that ever happens. And I got to say that I, every time we talk about a movie, um, I am continuously learning something new. Um, you always bring up fantastic points. Your eye for catching things in films, I think is extraordinary. Uh, and <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little stunning when I, cause I take a peek at your notes too, before we, we record, I'm like, oh man, I didn't, I didn't notice that. Did we watch the same movie? <laughs> and, uh, so it's, it's always fun because you always bring such a keen eye and sense for, uh, the movie making process. And that's fun for me. I learn something new every time we talk. Uh, so thank you, Craig. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Well, that's, that's far too kind. And, and honestly, I can echo the same thing. I, I get through, I watch these films and write down my notes and go, I don't want to do this by myself though, <laughs> because this would be so boring. And, and I, I don't know what to say about this. And I know Matt will have several things to talk about and he'll jump off on, on certain tangents that I didn't even consider. And he'll have some long extended metaphor or <laughs> something to story say. And, and it will be amazing. And I'll just be like, yes, <laughs> I have nothing to add. And I know that's going to happen periodically. And, and I look forward to that. And I look forward to talking to you about film uh, every time we do this. So uh, let's play the voicemail from, uh, from Dan. Uh, and then we'll, we'll wrap out of here. Yeah. Yeah. Hey guys, it's Dan there from coffee with Kenobi. Congratulations on one year of tremendous shows, insight, humor, intelligence, and overall fun. Thanks so much for all you do brightening up my day. Every time I listen to your show, you make me think, you make me laugh and you make me scratch my head. Pacific Rim. Really? That's the show. Oh man. We've got a lot of work to do, but I have faith in you in all seriousness. Love you guys. Give up the great work and congratulations again. Thank you, Dan. Yes. That uh, that made me Thank laugh <laughs> out loud when he dropped the Pacific Rim thing because Dan, again, hates Pacific Rim and we made him at least have to listen to a podcast about, about, that about how good it was. Possibly. <laughs> he was like, I don't get it. What <laughs> movie were you watching? Yeah. A th great one. Thank you, Dan. That was, yeah. that was a nice message. Yeah. Fantastic. So as we close for real, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook, email us at readingbetweenreels at gmail.com, or use the SpeakPipe app on our website. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast catcher. We'd love to hear your feedback, and it really helps get the word out about the podcast. And if you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group. It's a safe place to share your thoughts and discuss all things related to movies. One last thing, our next episode will be a review of the original Ghostbusters from 1984. If you want, you can send us an email or a voicemail about your favorite moments from Ghostbusters, and we'll share them on the next episode. 